Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ashish Khanna. Today, I'll be speaking with Troy Seelhammer, MD, on the article Comparison of Bivalrudin versus Heparin for Maintenance Systemic Anticoagulation During Adult and Pediatric Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation. To access the full article, please visit ccmjournal.org. Dr. Seelhammer is an intensivist and anesthesiologist in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Seelhammer. Do you have any disclosures to report to our audiences today? No, no disclosures today. All right. Well, again, we thank you for your time. I I know these are pressing times for the critical care community in general, and we're going to talk about a study that is focused on anticoagulation management on ECMO, and we all know how precious of a commodity the extracorporeal membrane oxygenation circuit is. So clearly, very timely discussion. Would you like to start by just summarizing what you all did? Absolutely, and I appreciate the kind introduction. Our study was a retrospective chart review of both adult and pediatric patients that required ECMO from January 1st, 2014 until October 1st, 2019. Our center at the Mayo Clinic is a large, high-volume tertiary referral center for both adult and pediatric ECMO. And in total, we were able to include 424 individuals, and about three-quarters of those were adults in both the bivalrudin and heparin groups, and the smaller group, about 25%, were in the pediatric groups. And really, our purpose of our study was to compare the efficacy and safety of bivalrudin versus heparin-based anticoagulation during ECMO. What we ended up finding is a variety of interesting things. Most importantly, I think, and this is the one that jumps out when people read this article the first time, is that there was a marked reduction in mortality in adults that received bivalrudin when compared to heparin. And in fact, the reduction in mortality was substantial, the odds ratio of of 0.39. And I think that's something we can spend some more time digging into and whether or not after factoring everything in, this is something that is believable because it's just such a huge difference in survival. And also some of the more nuanced findings that we found, there were some trends, of course, as you might expect, but not all of which reached cutoffs for statistical significance. But we did find that it seemed there was no difference in the rates of bleeding and in most metrics, the rate of transfusion in both groups, which is a little bit different perhaps than some of the other studies that have been published here in the past few years. Interesting. You know, clearly a very important question one way or the other, because all of us deal with heparin-based anticoagulation versus the alternative, and bivalrudin is certainly a very valuable alternative that all of us have utilized. What was, Dr. Seelhammer, your real rationale when you started thinking about actually looking at this data? What sort of made you think about this study? Well, like most centers, unfractionated heparin was our workhorse, both where I trained at the University of Michigan and also at the Mayo Clinic. 
And it's the go-to drug for systemic anticoagulation in mechanical circulatory support, primarily because really there's the broadest breadth of experience. It's widely available and it's inexpensive. And you can actually reverse it with a drug or protamine. Uh, however, it's, it's also very imperfect. It's challenging to titrate. And you have to worry about its cofactor, antithrombin, uh, for its mechanism of action. And so you're dealing not just with the drug effects, but with fluctuating levels of this other essential cofactor. And then lastly, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia which although not common in mechanical circulatory support, it is found because these patients are exposed to heparin during their courses. And if it were to develop, it markedly impacts the patient's morbidity and mortality. And so for many years, there's been a search for a better alternative. When I joined the Mayo Clinic in 2014, at the time, we were managing a subset of individuals where we struggled to achieve that balance of adequate systemic anticoagulation and hemostasis. Just from excess deposition on the circuit, we would, in a subgroup, employ a dual strategy where we would use Argatraban, another direct thrombin inhibitor, in conjunction with heparin. The challenge there is that we had now had two different drugs acting on similar pathways, and and lab monitoring couldn't discriminate the effects of each individual drug. The addition of Argatraban seemed to quiet down the laydown on our circuits, but because we had such a challenge with titration, it left us with a lot of questions, perhaps more questions than answers. And so we looked to the literature to, for some guidance, and what we found is some case reports and some small case series, and an article by Dr. Renuzzi et al. dating back to 2011 in 21 postcardiotomy VA ECMO patients, where they were able to find a reduction in the sort of fluctuant nature of intensity of anticoagulation. That is, they were able to find that delicate balance and maintain it a bit better with bivalrudin when compared to heparin. And they bled less and they required less blood product transfusion. And so we decided to develop a protocol for the administration of bivalrudin in this population. Initially, we targeted adults only. And once we developed a guideline based upon what little evidence we did have, we were able to employ it on selected patients where we felt like we were continuing to struggle with anticoagulation. And from there, things just slowly unfolded. We were able to mature our guidelines. And we can talk a bit more about that if that's of interest. Yeah, so th this is a fascinating story, Troy. And, and, I'll, and I'll say that, you know, a, a question that jumps out right away is it, within your study population, you chose to club pediatrics and adults together. Was that done for a reason or do you truly believe that the interaction of heparin, bivalrudin in children and adults is the same when they're on circuit or otherwise? That's a very good question. We had had more struggles with anticoagulation in the pediatric population. The exposure of the artificial circuit compared to the circulating blood volume is much, much greater in pediatrics, particularly in the small neonates. And also their anticoagulation systems or hematologic systems is not quite mature. And so we struggled historically with finding the right intensity of anticoagulation and finding a drug to help achieve that. And so when we had some success early with the Argatraban-Heparin combination, and then subsequent to that, some success with, uh, with the bivalent protocol, we were very quick to roll out that protocol in an adjusted form to our pediatric population. Both groups had dedicated guidelines. The, the protocols were a little bit different, but very, very similar and nuanced just for the specifics that were relevant for the pediatric population. And then having 
having used this drug over the course of four years, when we started to develop this actual study to look back in time from start to finish, when we first rolled it out and how things played out over that time interval, we felt that there was beneficial potential benefit in both groups. Whether or not the overall efficacy or its impact is identical, I think that's probably not possible for us to determine. But I do I do think that it was worth looking to see if indeed both groups could benefit from the intervention. And we didn't quite find that in our study. One of the rationales for looking at both pediatrics and adults is because it, it really hadn't been done before, at least as it relates to bivalerudin anticoagulation in ECMO. And so we wanted to get some evidence out in the literature to try and, and get the ball rolling on, on a more sophisticated analysis in the future. So the other thing that would be fairly obvious in an analysis like this is you probably included patients over a certain period of time, and it looks like your results state that your inclusion was from 1st of January 2014 to the 1st of October 2019. I'm sure that Mayo Clinic as an institution changed its anticoagulation strategies along the way. Do you feel that that sort of change over time also affected your results for this study? Very good question. We had a lot of changes in our program prior to January 1st, 2014. Some of these were technological improvements. We had migrated to the cardio help system along with its associated sets and artificial oxygenator. We also had developed and rolled out an established protocol for the administration of unfractionated heparin that included a very tight time frame for initiation and titration of the drug, all guided by selected laboratory parameters. And we had rolled out a series or sequence of lab testing whereby once hemostasis is gradually achieved, the frequency of anticoagulant monitoring is de-escalated. And so that was all established prior to January 1st, 2014. Additionally, we had changed from historically a pediatric intensivist-led ECMO program to a dual intensivist-led program whereby the pediatric intensivist would manage the pediatric patients and adult intensivist would manage the adult patients. And that all took place prior to January 1st, 2014. And so part of our rationale for that inclusion date specifically was to try to mitigate some of these confounders. Additionally, during our analysis, we adjusted for year of ECMO. So we were trying to adjust for heparin patients that received heparin on a given year and try to adjust for differences in the in actual study year uh, that was included in the trial. To, again, to try and adjust for things that we might not have measured. But there were no major programmatic or technological changes or other guideline changes in the study dates between 2014 and 2019. So yes, it is certainly possible, but nothing that we were able to determine that to measure and include more in a sophisticated fashion. Sure. So what happens to the actual included patients? Your results say that you had 540 patients, of which you excluded 118, and then there were 89 pediatrics with some on heparin, some on bivalrudin, and 333 adults. Did you have to exclude a lot of patients for the fact that they were on mixed anticoagulation, which means that they started with heparin at some stage, they got heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and then you switched to something else? Was that on the major reasons for exclusion or, or otherwise? No, th there was a small number that fell into that category, but 
we excluded a total of 118 patients. And of those, the majority were excluded because they didn't receive systemic anticoagulation within the first 48 hours. And so we didn't feel that, you know, comparing that smaller cohort was was appropriate because there's typically a reason why we wouldn't start anticoagulation during that time interval. And so the population is potentially quite different. And then, of course, we had the typical, you know, didn't approve the research use of their medical record. And we had 25 patients in total that died within six hours of ECMO start. And so for obvious reasons, we didn't include those either. The question, though, about how to handle those patients that are shifted from one group to another was one that we we really struggled with. We actually ended up having to pull our data three times and do three separate uh, analyses to try and get things right. And that's one of the things that we really struggled with, both getting the accurate data pull or the abstraction piece right, and then how to analyze these in a, in a fashion that, that was you know developed in advance of actual data collection. And what we tried to do is to establish the exclude the first initial bolus of heparin that they would have received, because that was oftentimes at the time of cannulation. And we would use the start of their systemic anticoagulation infusion as our initial categorization of their study group. A small number of patients, and it was a very small number, transitioned from the heparin group into bivalrudin, and those were those that were suspected or confirmed heparin-induced homocytopenia. To my recollection, there weren't any patients that were transitioned from bivalrudin into the heparin group. So this is fascinating stuff, and it's also fascinating because you well realize that you're sitting at a center where the use of bivalrudin as a primary anticoagulant is practiced, and I feel that that is certainly not the norm in a lot of other places where it is still sort of used as a rescue agent when things are not working well with heparin. Do you agree with that observation? Yes, that is very reflective of what's been published in the literature and, and what I've encountered in, in various centers traveling around over the past few years, yes. So do you feel that, you know, this really interesting data is now going to hopefully change clinical practice? I think it offers the possibility of practice improvement. And I think it's a bit too early to say with certainty that this should be used more broadly and at the majority of centers. But I do think because of its mechanism of action, it's easier to manage clinically. And that by itself is a big selling point to centers that are considering the transition to bivalrudin. Frankly, by not having to worry about antithrombin, you don't have to assay that particular compound and you don't have to replace it. The titration tends to to be easier too. Now, our data didn't show a reduction in APTT frequency, but we did markedly reduce the frequency of other assays, including no longer needed to use the anti-10A assay. We didn't need to use ACTs in any frequency, and we markedly diminished our dependence upon thromboelastography. So although we didn't change APTT frequency, we probably dramatically reduced the overall lab frequency, and that's something that I'd, uh, we'd like to explore further in the future. And so at the bedside, when you're managing this population, rather than trying to choose which assay you like and which lab results you don't necessarily believe in that clinical context, now you're left with a cleaner way of assessing the anticoagulate intensity and adjusting as necessary. And in the future, this is likely to get even easier. We are just rolling out at the Mayo Clinic our chromogenic factor 2A, which is an assay that is really targeted and developed for the use of this drug class. My hope is that it offers an even better way of titration the drug in the future. And I think because you can dose it so readily and adjust it so, so easily, it offers the clinician at the bedside just an easier time with getting your head wrapped around this concept of finding that delicate balance between hemostasis and anticoagulation.
So all of this makes me think healthcare dollars. Did you guys plan to investigate like an incremental cost effectiveness analysis of some sort comparing not just the two agents, but looks like you had a significant cost saving in terms of not having to do as many anticoagulation tests in your bival rudin group? Yes, that's a very good question. The The drug cost for bivalrudin is significantly more expensive on an equipotent basis versus unfractionated heparin. Depending upon your contractual rates, it's at least 20 times the price for drug acquisition. And that is even reflective of us buying much more of the compound since we administer it to so many more patients now. So the drug is much more expensive. And so then the, the question is, how do you make up that difference? Can you make this cost effective for the total cost of administration? And that would factor in things like, sure, lab monitoring, but also hemorrhage, needing to go back to the operating room when you've over or under anticoagulated your population, transfusion, all of these things can have an impact on the overall cost of administration. And we had uh, very much wanted to explore that in our study. We have some limitations at our center with the proprietary nature of cost analyses. And so that requires a, an entirely separate project. And it's something we, we do fully intend to do in the future, but it did require in, in a complete separate uh, set of analyses at our center. However, others have explored this. Dr. Hamza et al. at the Cleveland Clinic published a wonderful manuscript last spring in early 2020. And this was in the pediatric population and they specifically focused on a cost analysis. And, and what they were able to, to find is that the overall cost of administration of bivalrudin at their center for this population of pediatric ECMO patients was significantly lower than that of the heparin group. Uh, and this is very much reflective of what going, dating back to back in 2011, what got us interested in this drug in the first place this by Renuzzi et al. in 2011, they also found cost effectiveness in, in their population. So I, I don't know if the verdict is out on whether or not this is indeed cheaper per se versus heparin, but I think it's definitely a question worth asking. And, and those looking at further analysis using this compound and ECMO should, should definitely consider it as part of their analysis plan. Because so I think it's a question that we all really want answered. Yeah, again, you know, they say one good retrospective study sets the stage for several sub-analyses and maybe a, a prospective randomized trial. Just jumping ahead, I'm sure there's been lots of suggestions on what to do next with this exciting data. What are some of the things that are high priority for you in terms of future directions with this data? Well, one of our priorities going forward is going to be to try to move this from a single site to a multi-site or multi-center type approach. And uh, although we haven't yet broached the subject of a prospective trial, we have begun collaboration with several other large tertiary referral centers within the United States to try and pool our data. And what we'd like to do is, to, of course, increase our statistical power to try and better discriminate some of these harder to find a difference in outcomes like circuit intervention rate, individual blood product transfusion rate, uh, further analyze the cost effectiveness. And so we want to pool our data with other centers to try and get a better glimpse at, at those results. And then, of course, we want to look at subgroups. So we're in the process right now, late in the process of analyzing our COVID ARDS ECMO patients to look at the efficiency or efficacy of bivalrudin in that cohort. Because all of ours to date have received bivalrudin, this will be 
more of a descriptive series as opposed to a comparison series. But by collaborating with other centers, our hope is to, com- to try and compare efficacy as well at some point in the future. Well, one of the big things that our center is working on right now is, is reflective of the challenge, one of the challenges that we have with this study, that is data abstraction. We really struggle to get the data pull right. And I think hopefully we're, we're not entirely alone. And, and if we are, we're going to try and do better in the future. But pulling all the nuanced data with ECMO is, is really difficult. And some things we weren't able to, to actually pull at all, things like what is our target anticoagulant level? We don't actually have anywhere in our database what the goal APTT is. It's not documented. We have some daily notes that mention it, but the moment-to-moment goal is not reported anywhere. And so we want to build a more robust data set in the future where we can pull data more readily, more quickly, get the data to, to the larger research audience more quickly, and to try and make meaningful forward changes with our population. Yes, indeed. You know, you hit the nail on the head. People get into doing smaller retrospective studies. And you realize that, you know, I wish that the clinician or which could include us had documented things in appropriate boxes where they could be they could be extracted electronically. And and that doesn't happen all the time. And I guess what you're almost leaning towards is an establishment of a maybe a national ECMO registry, which is different from ELSO in that, you know, you're focused on anticoagulants, for example, and you literally provide all your participant sites, the exact data fields to enter and and where so you could get precise data as you build this registry. Uh, yes, that's uh, that is a part of our vision. We want to use the ELSO registry as sort of a starting point, not because we want to necessarily replicate it, but we do want to try and figure out what's been successful for the ELSO registry and then what's absent or missing from the registry in its current form. We'll also look for other databases as well, like the STS database, and, and try and figure out how to do this the best way we can prospectively, because whatever challenges that we can try and address now early on will make things much more fruitful later on on. And our goal is to start with this as a, a Mayo Clinic enterprise-wide project where we can roll in our lar- other large ECMO sites in Jacksonville and in Arizona, and then eventually broaden this perhaps to other collaborating centers in the future. Excellent. You touched a little bit on COVID-19, and clearly, you know, our audience would love to hear what your gut feeling about that is. You, obviously, you're, you said you don't have a control group on that, but say you did have a control group on that. You know, what's your gut feeling with COVID-19 and behavior of anticoagulation. You know, that's one of the challenges as well when we put these patients on ECMO. Yeah, it's a... That's a million dollar question. Just to sort of describe the way that we manage this aspect of this patient's population's care, we uniformly give a small dose of heparin as a bolus upfront when going on ECMO. And then in all patients that we've managed to date, we institute a bivalent infusion early in their care, really as soon as the, the hemostasis can be demonstrated and normalization of the APTT towards normal range. It doesn't have to fully normalize, just near normal. And then within the first 24 for hours, we administer low-dose aspirin. And I think this is sort of a, a time to pause and, and consider what's different with the COVID population. We know that there's a lot of laboratory derangements in this population. That's been well publicized at this point. We also know that early reports of ECMO COVID ARDS has been fraught with thromboembolic complications, circuits that just continue to fail and require component replacements or full circuit replacements. And that has complicated and challenged outcomes. And so we early on 
on decided we were going to try to leverage bivalrudin and also leverage targeting primary hemostatic cascades with low-dose aspirin. You know, whether or not that's been successful, I think we would really need to compare our cohort to a heparin-based cohort. But we have had quite favorable outcomes. Our, our survival rates are really quite good to date. And so I'm optimistic that, you know, not just focusing on secondary hemostasis, but maybe broadening to include primary hemostasis offers a clinical advantage. Excellent. And very briefly, Troy, you know, great results. You know, you look at it, you're like, wow, you know, there is a huge reduction in mortality in adults who received bivalrudin versus heparin. Obvious question, what all did you control for in terms of confounders? Yeah, that's a very good question. How do you control for all the different various aspects? I mean, I think one thing that's abundantly clear with our data set is that by including all adults and all pediatrics that met our criteria, we were including widely divergent patient populations, pathophysiologic states, even circuit configurations. And so comparing them, you know, head to head, it just wasn't really possible with our data set. The, the population is just too diverse. And that offers some advantages, but many, many disadvantages. And we struggled with how to control for all this stuff. So what we did try to do is we tried to adjust for, as I mentioned earlier, the year of ECMO that the, the patients were managed on. We also tried to include, of course, the age of the population in the pediatrics because comparing a neonate to an age 18 didn't seem all that fruitful. And let's see, we also included the cannulation approach, aortic versus peripheral, or I guess central versus peripheral cannulation, and the ECMO type, VV versus VA. But that's that's really the extent of what we tried to adjust for as pre-specified variables. All right. Well, I will tell you that this is fascinating stuff, and I'm absolutely certain that this is the beginning of a lot of new projects. In fact, I would say that this is probably great data to go in and look in for grant funding or to a large, much needed prospective randomized trial that would clearly help answer this question and that would probably be practice changing. Dr. Troy Seelhammer, I, I really want to thank you for your time today and sharing all of your great data with us. I wish you the best and take care of yourself. And thanks again for the discussion. I appreciate the invitation to contribute. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Ashish Khanna. Ashish K. Khanna, MD, FCCP, FCCM, is a staff intensivist and anesthesiologist, associate professor of anesthesiology, and section head for research with the Department of Anesthesiology, section on critical care medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. Dr. Khanna is heavily involved in SCCM sections, committees, and task forces, and has received the SCCM presidential citation multiple times. He has written more than 80 peer-reviewed articles and two dozen book chapters, as well as editorials, non-peer-reviewed articles, and online educational videos. He has been invited to talk about his work at prestigious national and international forums. His research interests include prediction of postoperative respiratory and cardiac events on the wards, outcomes of hypotension in critically ill patients, and use of novel vasopressors in shock states in the ICU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. 
Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.